0: Praise the Lord, everybody. We thank the Lord for each and every one of you taking time out of your Sunday morning to spend it with us here at Grace and Mercy Fellowship Center in our studio. We thank the Lord for those that have come and those that are uh, joining with us in prayer and being steadfast and immovable in the things of the Lord. We're definitely praying for you, and we ask that you just continue to pray for us. Last week, I started a conversation with you, uh, at least those of you who tuned in, about understanding the truth that Jesus is not only a savior, but he's also the judge. And as such, justice itself demands to be seen, and it also demands to be heard. We have to understand that Jesus satisfies the need for justice And the need of justice. The more that I read about church history, the more I find examples of Jesus the judge rather than Jesus the Savior manifesting covenant justice consistently and overwhelmingly in accordance with his holy word. Now, we have had an issue in the church where the church is only getting part of the story. The part that they are getting is leading them into a state of dysfunction and destruction because they believe that through grace, they can live as they want and out of their own bellies will, grace will still answer the demand for justice, allowing them no change. Well, Paul declared that sin should not abound and that grace is not the relief given to live in continual sin. Too many preachers don't want to deal with sin, but it cannot be avoided if you are going to preach the full picture of the gospel. Now, I believe that God revealed this to me in my own studies and meditation over his word, but what I'm going to say to you really isn't milk, It's not a milky word. It's not even a bread word. What I feel God is calling me to release today is a meat word. And some of you will not be able to handle it. And some will even misunderstand what I'm saying to the point that you may brand me a heretic. But I'm going to say it anyway. Hell has not enlarged itself because people are in sin. Let me say it again. Hell has not enlarged itself because people are in sin. And because they're in sin, they're condemned to hell because of their sin. You see, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, no one is going to hell because of sin. Now, 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 you, you can drop the rocks and just give me a chance to explain what I'm saying. Too many people in the body of Christ relate sin to what we do, and thus our sinful lifestyle or behavior becomes the cause of our hell destination. But that, that really is not scripturally correct. My behavior or lifestyle is a sign of who I have accepted as master of my life, it's also a sign of who I have rejected. Now, people are going to hell because they have rejected Jesus, not because they are sinners. Being a sinner is not just a behavioral thing, but in actuality and truth, it is a genetic thing. And we have to be very careful that we do not associate sin only with behavior because it is way more than behavior. Behavior is just a sign of a genetic issue. David declared in Psalm 51 and 5, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is pre-birth and thus behavior has yet to come into existence in the life of a unborn child. Yet An unborn child is shapen in iniquity, formed in sin. So genetically, as part of our makeup or our DNA, we are made sin because of our lineage to Adam. It is the heritage of humanity because of its lineage to Adam, the one who disobeyed, the one who fell, the one who sinned against God. And this is also why Jesus became sin for us. He did not just cover sin. He became sin because we were sin. So he becomes sin so that we could become righteousness. This is not a behavioral change. This is a genetic change. There was a genetic change of Christ in becoming sin that we might become righteousness in him. Rebirth from one created thing to another. So before I could ever practice sin, I was already a sinner. Understand this. Before I could ever behave or demonstrate sin, I was already A sinner, born in it, molded by it, shaped in it. Now, the judgment then is not against so much my practice of sin, but my genetic of sin. My practice of sin is revelatory of my service. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. The only way through Jesus is faith in who he is as the master of my practice or life. So when Jesus completed the work of redemption, sin was conquered, and now my faith in what he has done, not what I do or don't do, is the determining factor of my eternality, of the destination that I have, whether it be heaven or hell. So when I preach on behavior, I preach on it because behavior tells me what choice has been made about who is being served, not because the behavior itself is necessarily the issue. The behavior is a symptom of a much deeper problem, but it's not my actual problem. My problem is my choosing the wrong master. Now understand, I'm not saying that people are not going to hell. People are absolutely going to hell. I'm saying that people are not going to hell for what reason many of you think they are going to hell for. And when preachers only preach a seeker-sensitive gospel, they hide Jesus the judge from all who would hear them. I heard it said in uh, my time of instruction as a preacher uh, in my early years, uh, preaching the gospel, that there are three disciplines in theology related to preaching hermeneutics, homiletics, and apologetics. Hermeneutics is the science of preaching, homiletics is the art or the style in which I preach, and apologetics is the proof upon which preaching stands. So if preachers are to preach the truth, they need to be hermeneutically accurate, homiletically natural, and apologetically convincing. I was taught by my father that when I preach, I need to exegete the scripture within the context correctly. Don't try to style myself after anyone else but preach in a style that is natural for me and make my argument so convincing that the congregation will either straighten up and fly right or they'll lead the church and the sinner will have no fence to ride but will either surrender and get clean or reject sound doctrine and remain Unclean. Let me get to the text because I'm trying to get you somewhere. As I examine the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, I find that Pilate was forced to examine Jesus in order to administrate Roman justice. His encounter with Jesus really reveals much about the issue of biblical truth. John eighteen thirty three through 38 says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this? Or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly, in him at all and we know that this stirred the Jews but Jesus makes it plain that one of the primary reasons that he came into the world was to bear witness to the truth his plumb line statement is everyone who is of the truth hears my voice So the issue of Jesus bearing witness to the truth and our responsibility for what to do with that truth unfolds from Matthew 12, 14 through 21. Jesus was very pointed in warning his followers not to make him known because he had an assignment that he had to be fulfilled. That assignment involved the primary theme of truth as a standard for justice, Jesus had to take truth and justice to a place of victory. So, the justice to victory of Matthew 12 is found in the Greek word krisistone, kos. Krisis means a decision by a judge the judgment denotes the notion that's expressed by the verbal stem in other words a verdict or a sentence so we should ask what level of victory is intimated by the greek word Nikos and since Nikos is used only four times in the new testament it begs our attention the passage where it is most appears is 1 corinthians 15 which gives us an idea of the power and strength of this word. We're told in verses 54 through 57, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Nikos, O death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory, Nikos? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, Nikos, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's obvious that Jesus' mission of taking justice to the utter and complete state of victory had a dimension to it, that leaves nothing out. It is complete. It is total. So we have access then to the court of heaven in Christ. When Jesus referred to this assignment, he quoted from Isaiah as he often did. To be absolutely accurate, we have to go to the original source of Isaiah and look at it for a moment. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 says this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now, if we look at verse 3, we find that verse 3 is of great interest as it says, he will bring forth justice for truth. So the Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpah. And for truth, it is emeth. So the New Testament definition of justice would be uh, an administrative decision or judicial decree to utterly vanquish an enemy. The Old Testament would be a prophetic proclamation establishing God's moral standard through just judgment. So the best dictionary for the Bible is the Bible. And context Determines meaning So let's look at verses 4 through 6 What do they say? He will not fail nor be discouraged Till he has established justice in the earth And the coastlands shall wait for his law Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens And stretched them out Who spread forth the earth And that which comes from it Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. God gave Jesus as a covenant guaranteeing access to establish his truth through biblical justice. You see, through the Lord Jesus, we have the right to ask. We have the right to claim. We have the right to demand biblical covenantal justice as a means of salvation. But the church is stuck in the mentality of extending personal mercy. They have yet to be awakened to the judicial side of the Davidic covenant. David understood his covenant of mercy applied in war. Hezekiah understood the covenant of mercy applied in war. How did we become so passive? Our generation is full of preachers who limit the gospel to just personal salvation. And if the church ever embraces the fullness of what their covenant with God is and begins to pray as Hezekiah prayed, A new standard of righteousness will begin to emerge in our culture and God's hand will be seen as establishing the fear of the Lord and bringing a measure of salvation for which Jesus died. Why should demons destroy our land by filling the nation that we love so dearly with iniquity so it has to be judged before we can ever enjoy harvest. Judgment must come before harvest. Isaiah tells us in 42 and 3 that all justice originates in truth. But when we look at Ephesians, we realize that one of the primary assignments of the church is to stand up and proclaim the standard of truth from which justice comes. In fact, the book of Ephesians is really just a New Testament Joshua, and Joshua's job was uh, unexplicably clear. His his job was to turn a prophetic promise into a physical reality. And in order to turn that prophetic promise for the land into physical reality, he had to follow the God-given path to fulfillment. In Joshua 1, 8 through 9, he was told, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? Meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, in order to bring a prophetic promise into reality, had to do it by consistently speaking the word into his heart. You see, the truth of God's word is seed that takes root in the soil of our lives. And when initiated by Holy Ghost, we can speak it forth from our lips with all of heaven to back it up. Ephesians reveals a heavenly conflict over uh, truth. Ephesians 3, 8 through 12 declares the purpose for the church itself. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. What a powerful declaration. Principalities and powers, they really administrate the kingdom of darkness and they do it through the power of deception. They have their own brand of truth. We can call it their truth like the world calls some of the things you believe your truth. They had their own brand of truth. When a deceived person reads our constitution, they look for license to live their defiant, destroying lifestyle any way they want and are driven to throw off every biblical restraint. When our forefathers established our land, they understood that sin could and would destroy it. Principalities and powers work hard to deceive people into believing that equal access under the law means that they are entitled to freedom to exercise their lifestyle any place and anywhere they want demons proclaim homosexuality is therefore a civil right principalities and powers advance this demonic truth the church however has another standard of truth that standard is God's revealed word and according to God's word homosexuality is a personal choice and an act of a person's will and if you choose to practice that which this reveals whom then you have rejected and also whom you have accepted your civil right is the flaming fire of hell then forever God discriminates against sin let me say that again for you God discriminates against sin He judges it. Why should the church just let you destroy our nation? The Bible sets forth the standard of righteousness upon uh, which justice itself is based. And we can access a heavenly court for that justice based upon God's moral standard and not the moral standard of man. One of the greatest wars against our nation has taken place in the legal arena by deceived men and women who work hard to pervert our Constitution and read their own interpretation into it, causing even the Supreme Court to reverse the law so that they could murder unwanted children and shed innocent blood at will. Here in Ohio, the majority voted to open the coffer for abortion by, re- by deceiving people about what is really in the actual law itself and making it about a person's right to their body while negating the right of the baby to live. I've stated this before. God is pro-choice. This is crafted into truth. That he has given unto us a measure or a fullness rather of free will. But he has also taught us in his word the sanctity of life and the choice he'd rather we make. Too many have made a career of enforcing demonic truth based upon deception on the rest of the population. The church has access to God's justice based on his moral truth. The problem is we haven't used it. We have to understand. We have not demanded covenantal justice. God didn't blink in killing 185,000 because of Hezekiah's prayer. Why would he blink in removing perverse leaders for the church? Too many leaders in the church have become too cozy with perverse leaders in the world. In Matthew 12, Jesus emphatically quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. And then he summarizes in verse 6 by stating in Matthew 12 and 21. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. But the entirety of Isaiah 42 and 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Justice to victory in Matthew has a particular application as demonstrated in Ephesians. In reading the epistle, we often neglect Paul's pedigree as an Old Testament scholar and fail to apply the epistle from an Old Testament mindset. Therefore, we miss a major portion of application. Ephesians presents the pinnacle revelation of God's purpose, which is the New Testament church. Setting Ephesians in its Old Testament theological context imparts a whole new importance concerning the issue of justice and truth in the earth. Ephesians adds an understanding through its application. The entire theme of the book itself is the church rising up to the fullness of Christ. And after tracing this thread through Ephesians and looking at the church in its current condition, the most casual of observers would have to agree that we are not even at a halfness, let alone fullness level. In Ephesians 1:15 through 23, Paul prays for the condition of the church and that we will get an understanding of the full measure of what Jesus bought and paid for which includes guaranteeing throne room access to institute justice for truth. As a matter of fact, it declares, therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come and put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the interesting part from Paul's prayer in Ephesians, the first chapter, is his, uh, it's found in the last line where he gives a biblical definition, a biblical identity to the church. Paul's definition is is clearly seen where God's truth has been made victorious, and he describes the church in this fashion The church is the body of Jesus, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That in itself is a transformational view of who we are. And what is available to us This is the theme that continues All the way through the entirety of the letter In chapter 222 we are told In whom you also are being built together For a habitation of God in the spirit fullness consistently appears as the thread that runs throughout the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, 14 through 21, the second priestly prayer for the church emerges. Verses 18 and 19 are abundantly clear in continuing this very common thread in the text. Praying that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints that is width, that is the width and length and depth and height to to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with what all the fullness of God. In chapter 4 we are told that the entire purpose of the fivefold ministry of apostle and prophet and uh, uh, evangelist and and pastor and and teacher is to bring who the church to where a place where verse 13 projects, we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Ephesians 5 and 18, we're exhorted and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. In chapter 6, we are encouraged in verse 10 and following to put on the whole armor of God. Why? So we can intercede for victory. Once again, the the theme of the fullness is carried through to its very end. It is impossible to read the book of Ephesians and not realize Jesus himself not only brought and bought and paid for salvation, but has an expectation that we walk in the fullness of the ascended and seated judge of all the earth. The entire purpose of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, according to verses 13 through 18, is revealed to us. It declares, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of, of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying always with prayer with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for who? For all the saints. The apostle Paul understood that the armor of God had its own purpose. And that purpose was to take the truth and through the power of intercession, call for God's hand to be moved to establish that standard of truth in your surrounding. The thread that runs through Ephesians compares and contrasts Who then rules? Jesus made a show of principalities and powers and paid the price to put them under his feet. And in so doing, he put them under our feet, according to Ephesians 1 and 22, where it declares, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be be head over all things To the church. So Ephesians presents a church then charged with the responsibility of establishing God's moral standard and bringing his justice into any and every situation where we encounter injustice. Chapter 3 raises the question then again of who rules? Who rules? Demons rule through deception. They, they, they rule through deceived leaders. And when the church neglects to demand throne room justice, Supreme Court justices who impose homosexual marriage upon the church creating lawsuits for discrimination against homosexuals by refusing to marry them. God discriminates against sin. He judges it. He killed everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah because of his judgment. Demand the church covenant justice upon errant judges. Jesus bought and paid for access to victorious justice based upon the truth of a biblical moral standard he took justice to victory we have a voice then before the very throne of god the throne of justice and i call upon the people of god to use it in luke 19:11 through 14 jesus taught a parable that applies when he said now as they heard these things he spoke another parable Because he was near Jerusalem And because they thought the kingdom of God Would appear immediately Therefore he said A certain nobleman Went into a far country To receive for himself a kingdom And to return So he called Ten of his servants He delivered to them ten miners And said to them Do business till I come But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now this parable highlights the dysfunction of his citizenry. The problem with the citizens was that they refused to allow the king to rule. And since the king did not rule over them, watch this, he could not rule through them. Did you catch it? If you do not allow the true king to rule over you, you will not enjoy the king ruling through you. And this parable reveals that the primary purpose of the church is to establish and call forth victorious, kingly justice. Apparently the church has to prove to principalities and powers that Jesus, the one who is alive, the one who was in the beginning, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, Jesus rules, not them. That proof apparently only emerges as we are led into unjust situations where we have a choice of exactly how to respond. God expects us to call forth covenant justice where we make a stand and put a demand on the covenant. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego mentally prepared to meet Such a challenge is this. They refused to bow to an idol. They were thrown in the fire in declaration of their dependence upon what was true. And truth prevailed and they were delivered as a result. One question worth asking then is how does God feel? when he looks at a culture and finds that there is no justice in the culture. Well, Isaiah 59 describes the Lord's reaction when he looks at a culture and sees no justice. Isaiah 59, 14 through 15 states, justice is turned back and righteousness righteousness stands far off for truth is fallen in the street and iniquity cannot enter or in uh, equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. When Jesus looks at a culture and sees that there is no justice, Jesus is displeased, which means it is evil in his eyes. When the church has covenant access to divine justice but refuses to execute that justice, then it is actually an enabling power for evil to prevail. Jesus' response in Isaiah 59 was to put on the armor and through intercession subjugate the enemy just as Paul taught in the book of Ephesians. Isaiah 42 declares that once a biblical moral standard has been erased from a culture, it is exceedingly difficult to reestablish, but it is not impossible. The question is... Can we empower a generation of believers to learn and receive their covenant and birth justice based in biblical truth? Jesus has made everything available that we need. The question then becomes are we willing to invest the time and go through the necessary boot camp as we graduate? and help raise up a generation who is committed to manifesting the justice of God. If we will, nations can be saved. The churches for far too long sat idly by while evil prevailed. While evil men and evil women became the instruments of demonic power to execute demonic justice Against not just humanity but the church. We cannot as a people any longer sit idly by while the enemy is just running and having his way. We are the voice of God's moral standard in the earth. We cannot lie down with them. We cannot accept these rules and regulations that they establish as just being morally right because they say so. When you destroy the body, which is the temple of God, you defy the word of God. Just because we make something legal doesn't mean it's morally right. Just because I say you can drink yourself into oblivion doesn't make the destruction of the temple right. Just because I say now you can smoke yourself into oblivion doesn't mean that it is morally, biblically, scripturally right. Because you are destroying the temple of God The very vessel that carries the excellency of the power of God The spirit of Holy Ghost dwells richly in the body How can we as the church just sit back and accept it And not raise a voice And I'm not talking about giving clubs and sticks And walking down the street and bringing violence and destruction I'm talking about a church that will get back on its knees that will turn down its plate that will go before the king of kings and the lord of lords and begin to stand in the gap for the deception is great and this nation is falling and his people shall suffer if they turn their back on God where is the church we are the presence and light of the glorious gospel in the earth We don't bend to the will of culture. We establish the moral standard as declared in the text because that is who we are called to be. Raise up church and demand covenantal justice that the truth of God would be restored in this nation. That this nation would not succumb as every great nation that has preceded it to only be of distant memory and something that's talked about historically because it no longer exists. You are at the precipice. You are the change agent. You, the church. That embodies the fullness of God. Remember, you have genetically changed and become righteousness in Christ Jesus. A genetic change. And the manifestation of your behavior is the the revelation of who is your master. If there's no change, your master is deception. But if you walk in the newness of life after the power of Christ, you have revealed that your master is Jesus and your eternity is in heaven. All to the glory of God. You might listen to people like Pastor Mike Todd who would declare that heaven isn't the goal. Foolery, deception, doctrines of devils. And we as the people of God have to speak against it for our destination is heaven. Our destination is in the presence of God eternally. Our destination is where God is for he declared when he left this place that I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am ye may be also in my father's house there are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you my destination is heaven in the presence of God eternally Don't buy into the corruption and the deception that are uttered by demonic presence. Stand upon the word of truth. Speak the word of truth. Allow a genetic change to take place in your life or your destination will be hell, torment, and suffering. God is not mocked. Only his word is true. Continue to tune in and hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unrestricted, unrestrained in its fullness. As they say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The stuff that makes you feel good on a cool summer day with the breeze hitting In just enough clouds to block the heat of the sun. As well as in the icy winters where the sun is far off and hard to feel. All of it is for our benefit. In its fullness, God wants us to experience. Know that I love you and that I'm praying for you. May the Lord keep you And shine his light upon you and grant to you great peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Have an awesome Sunday. And may the Lord richly bless you. This has been a production of the GMFC Studios. God bless you.